Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. One hundred percent online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at cerebral.com/podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get thirty, thirty. Ready to get thirty. Ready to get twenty, twenty, twenty. Ready to get twenty, twenty. Ready to get fifteen, 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 fifteen. Just fifteen bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell no holds barred truth about being a woman post 40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is the author of the cult bestseller, The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron. Part book, part toolkit, part spiritual guide, The Artist's Way has sold over 4 million copies globally and has inspired countless artists, writers and creatives, including Elizabeth Gilbert, Alicia Keys, Pete Townsend, and many more. In the 30 years since that was published, Julia has written a movie, seven plays, and 23 books, including a memoir, Floor Sample. Written in her late 50s, she looked back over the first half of her life, her Catholic education, alcoholism and drug abuse, her brief marriage to director Martin Scorsese, and her subsequent search for meaning, for herself, for home, and ultimately, for a way to be comfortably sober. You don't understand unless you have a belief in a higher power and ask it for help. You won't be able to stay sober. Someday you'll drink again. So I asked the woman next to me what she prayed to. And she said, oh, I pray to Mick Jagger. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking from her home in Santa Fe, Julia shared her incredible journey from just a girl at Catholic school to the artist's way. She spoke candidly about losing the love of her life, getting and staying sober, and how the morning pages transformed her life. Thank you for coming on The Shift. You wrote Floor Sample in your late 50s, didn't you? Yes, I was 57 when I wrote it. What is it, do you think, about that kind of time of life, that mid-ish point that makes us want to reevaluate? I think we spend the first part of our life going sort of pell-mell, And then we hit our 50s, 
Uh, and suddenly we start hearing about healthcare, aging, funeral arrangements, and we say, oh, how have I spent my life? Uh, it's a time of enforced introspection. Yeah, it really is. So how was it for you now with the book coming out, you know, in the UK? Is it 15, 16 years later? More. 18 years later. Have you revisited it, reread it? I just read it. I finished it yesterday. And I thought, my God, my life was turbulent. <laughs> it really was turbulent. Yeah. Were you tempted to add anything or did you want to take anything out or just accept it as it was? I tend to take it as it was, that I tried to be as accurate as possible uh, when I wrote. And I think that I achieved accuracy uh, and hopefully not too much drama or pathos and uh, hopefully a, a bit of humor glimmers through. Oh, yeah, absolutely does. Um I'd like to talk a, a little bit before we talk about the artist's way. I'd like to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about your childhood and growing up. Uh -huh. I mean, you were the second eldest of seven children in Illinois, weren't you, in a, a Catholic family and went to a convent, I guess. What was the impact of the nuns on your growing up and subsequently? Well... I didn't know it at the time, uh, and I only recently thought of it, but it was an example of powerful women, uh, and um, the nuns had some autonomy and some power and some grace, uh, and I watched them, and I found myself thinking, oh, it is possible to be fulfilled as a woman. So the nuns were a very good example for me. Is that a conclusion that you've drawn with the benefit of hindsight? Or do you think you felt that at the time? I knew that I sort of hero-worshipped some of the nuns. I had Sister Mary Carroll, who was an Olympic swimmer. Uh, I had Sister Elizabeth, who was a consultant to NASA, our space program, uh, and she threw a mean football. <laughs> because you, very early on, were very much about wanting to be known for your writing and your wit. Until you met your first husband, you, you don't seem to have had any interest in men, particular interest in men and marriage. So was that an influence of them, do you think? I think the nuns may have influenced me to not go looking for a husband, but to go looking for creative fulfillment. Uh, and I had a nun who was particularly influential, Sister Julia Claire Green. Uh, and uh, when we got to the point where the nuns were trading in their habits for street clothes and uh, becoming more radicalized, I realized that she not only loved poetry, she loved good shoes. <laughs> hidden away under her habit yes i love the idea of that it's really interesting because i think there's such an assumption that it's a negative that education but the messages you took from it were not i didn't find it a negative i found them examples of daring so fascinating tell me a bit about the rough riders aha uh -huh. 
Well, I was at the Catholic school, uh, and I had a bus ride to school on which I met a young woman named Lenny Lane. Lenny was not Catholic. She was Christian science, uh, and uh, my parents were horrified that I was hanging out with a Protestant, and <laughs> her Protestant parents were horrified that she was becoming friends with a Catholic. And what we had in common were horses. She had a beautiful golden thoroughbred named Hot Note, uh, and I had a small, classy, hackney pony named Chico. We lived on the edge of a great swamp, and I found that we could use the horses to swim across the river in the swamp. And people were envious of our daring, but they were afraid to follow. So the Rough Riders Club really only had two members, Lenny and myself. Did you want anyone else to join or not really? I liked the idea of being more brave than the others. So uh, I wasn't ready to accept just anyone. Uh, and we had a, a friend named Chrissy Corhummel, and Chrissy wanted to join the Rough Riders, but when she found out what it entailed swimming across the swamp, she backed out. So that left us with ourselves. So you made the initiation really hard so that nobody else would get in. Yes, that was the idea. <laughs> I was really struck when I was reading Floor Sample at the amount of times that you were, I mean, not surprised, I suppose, but the amount of times that you were told you couldn't because you were a girl, you know, the, the Jesuit priest at uh, your university telling you that you'd make a first-rate theologian, except that you're a girl, you know, the therapist who said, you know, you want to be a writer, but it might be more sensible to be a secretary. Did any of that ever cut any ice? Did it ever instill any doubt? Uh, it instilled anger. Uh, Excellent. And uh, that anger became fuel, fuel for more writing. So I think uh, that the negative messages that I received made me radical. How did your radicalization first start to manifest? You started a feminist society, didn't you, at university? Yes, I did. Georgetown was a boys' school with just a sprinkling of women, and there were rules that were very anti-woman. We weren't allowed to sit on the lawn. We weren't allowed to wear slacks. We had to wear skirts. And um, we weren't allowed to work on the newspaper. And... I found myself writing manifestos, uh, and uh, I had two sympathetic teachers, one who ran the English department, Roger Slakey, and one who worked for him, Roland Flint. They both encouraged me the same way they encouraged the men, uh, and I flourished under their attention. Yeah, because there's a real sense, wasn't there, that men get to be writers and women get to be wives? Well, I found that my aspirations were not, quote, normal. I thought, I'm going to be a writer. Did you head straight to New York to do that? You did, didn't you? I stayed in Washington, D.C. for several years 
after graduation, working for the Washington Post and for Washingtonian Magazine. It was there that I got the phone call from Rolling Stone Magazine, uh, and I went to work for them. That brought me notoriety. Your university was very conservative, wasn't it? I mean, very much still in the 1950s when the 1960s was going on elsewhere. Yeah. 60s New York must have been quite a leap. I have always been very lucky. So what happened to me was that when I got asked to write for Rolling Stone, they gave me an assignment, which was a Watergate assignment, a Watergate being a political scandal. So I I wrote about the refugees of, of the Watergate scandal, uh, and that piece of writing brought me to the attention of Time magazine. And so suddenly I had a hot career as a writer, but I had previously sort of turned my nose up at journalism uh, and uh, said, thank you, but I'm writing fiction. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, suddenly I was in a position of becoming well-known, well-known for work that didn't seem to me to be that important. I wasn't convinced journalism was the right thing for a serious writer to be doing, and I took myself to be a serious writer. When, in fact, that Watergate piece was a very serious piece. Yes. It must have really pissed off your um, previous bosses that you left and immediately did something like that. Well, the Washington Post was like my university. It didn't believe in promoting women. So when I left and got the Rolling Stone assignment and scooped the Post on Watergate, nobody had gotten behind the scenes before. When I scooped the Post, there were feelings of betrayal with my former editors. I just felt like they had to understand, and if they couldn't understand, they had to let me be. Well, they wouldn't have given you that opportunity anyway, would they? No. One of the things that really struck me, you know, a lot through the early part of the book, the same thing again is that after you met Martin Scorsese and were in a relationship with him, you'd met him when you were interviewing him, and then a colleague, was it a Playboy magazine, basically stole your work and said that because you were in a relationship with him, you were basically fair game now. Yes. Were you shocked? I was shocked. (laughs) I was shocked. Uh, I basically was plagiarized, uh, and, um, you know, I have to say, over the years, I have felt I had the last laugh. Just a bit, yeah. You know, that my work had turned out well. I learned uh, a great deal from Martin about how to treat an artist, uh, and um, I feel, in retrospect, uh, it was like the higher power sent me to a one-man film school. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's a very um, productive way of thinking about it. I mean, I was struck by that over again when, you know, your work was plagiarized and then your editor said, if you want to write for us again, get divorced. And that's a real, like, you're a woman, you can't have it all. And none of that would have happened to a man. This is true. And it's still, you know, here we are, it's... 
45 years later. Uh, and often when I do an interview like this one, uh, the interviewer will really want to focus on the period of time when I was with Martin, which was actually a brief period of time. Uh, and I have had a whole career uh, and a whole life separate from him and later than him. I don't believe that Martin probably gets asked about me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, he gets to talk about his, what's the word, oeuvre. Right. And you have an enormous oeuvre of your own, you know, because Martin's been and gone in the book. But it's very near the beginning. I mean, he pops up, but... His, you know, as I guess maybe, as you say, his influence and, and your interest in film. But can we just briefly talk about your alcoholism in as much as it leads really importantly through to the higher power you just mentioned and, and consequently the artist's way? Well, I laughed. I kind of snorted my coffee when I read. Because your paternal grandfather had been an alcoholic, your parents offered your brothers a thousand pounds each not to drink, but it never occurred to them to offer the girls the same. Yes, that's true. I think I would have ignored it. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I was, I was a rebel, but I didn't drink all the way through high school. I, I started drinking really when I went away to college, uh, and there I was at a boys' school not welcome as a woman, and it seemed like drinking was a way to fit in, uh, and I didn't realize that my drinking was abnormal. Uh, although it was clearly abnormal from the beginning. I had what we call blackouts, which is a period where you may look and talk the same, but you don't remember a thing. Your, your, your recorder is broken. Uh, and I learned when I got sober that regular drinkers did not have blackouts, just incipient alcoholics. So... It was a period in Hollywood where the town was sort of wide open uh, and movies had cocaine budgets built into them. Uh, and I found myself using alcohol and drugs as a, a way to feel comfortable in a very uncomfortable situation. Because if you thought uh, Washington, D.C. was sexist, it was nothing compared to how bad Hollywood was. Well, I suppose you were just seen as his wife once you were over there, were you? When Variety, which is the big entertainment magazine, published an account of our marriage, they referred to me as a former writer. So, but meanwhile, I had Martin who was saying, I need help with my movie, uh, and you're very talented, so you're going to work on my films. Uh, and uh, I had grown up with a mother who uh, was herself a wonderful poet and had a master's degree in English, but she made herself subservient to my father. They were madly in love, which was a, lo a lovely thing to grow up with. But it was also a learning curve that you could have it all. Uh, and 
to a large degree, my mother did have it all, and I thought I would follow in her footsteps and support Martin, and that that would be enough to, to keep me happy. But you were a writer, and you were already a successful writer, and you found yourself over there, you know, you left the friend who said to you, you left Washington a writer, and now you're a wife. And there was one line where you you talk about, you know, before you split up with Martin and get sober and you're taking cocaine and your coke dealer saying you've just got a tiny little wife's habit and just so demeaning, isn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And I wish I had had more common sense than I did, but I felt anything that allowed me to keep writing was a good thing. Uh, and since I seemed to have to drink, it was a good thing to have cocaine to keep me lucid enough to write. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So how did you get to the point where you were, you must have been what? Were you about 28? Yes. 29, when you accepted that you were an alcoholic. How did you get to that point and then make it happen that you gave up and have been dry for 45 years? Well, it was inevitable. My drinking cost me Martin, and he hated my drinking and was worried about it. And um, I found... I was drunk when he came over to visit, and I had spread our wedding albums out on the, on the kitchen table, and I said to him, sweetheart, look how happy we were. And in the pictures, we, we looked just ecstatic. Uh, and he said, Julia, it's not going to work, by which he meant my drinking. Uh, and... Uh, I watched him walk across the curb, get into his sports car and zip away. And a little voice in me said, this is for real. You've really lost him now. He'll never come back. Uh, and um, then I thought, I need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> I started drinking and I had a blackout. And when I came to, it was four o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I reached for the bottle by the bed to drink myself back to sleep. And it was empty. And I panicked, uh, and it was the first time I realized that my drinking wasn't a choice, it was a necessity, that I was in fact addicted. I called a girlfriend on the East Coast, somebody who was a Washington reporter like I was, uh, and I said, what am I going to do? Uh, and I thought I meant about Martin leaving me, uh, and uh, she thought I meant my drinking. So. She gave me the number of an alcoholic to call, and I called that woman, and she sent over a friend of hers who was an alcoholic, uh, and the friend didn't scold me, 
Instead, she talked about her own drinking, and I identified, and uh, that was the beginning of sobriety. Tell me about how the three pages thing that you're so famous for, how that started, because it was the three pages, wasn't it, that helped you write without drink? Yes, I think so. Uh, And uh, the three pages was an amount that I could probably get done before my daughter, who was a toddler, woke up. I would race to the page and write as rapidly as I could. Uh, And what happened was after I had been doing this for about 90 days, all of a sudden a character strolled into my consciousness, uh, and the character was somebody who belonged in a novel or not in a movie. Uh, And I found myself thinking, oh, I can be any kind of writer. I can write anything and everything. I don't have to be trapped in the cage of a Hollywood screenwriter or or a director's wife. So the three pages became something that I quickly recommended to a friend of mine who was blocked. Uh, And he started writing. Uh, And he, too, began to have breakthroughs. And so I thought, oh, maybe there's something to this. And this something to this was a contact with a higher power a creative energy that was benevolent. Uh, And it was different from my upbringing where where God was not necessarily on my side. Did you initially find that difficult? Because, you know, it's a a tenet of AA, isn't it? And it's a really important part of the artist's way. But as you say, you grew, you know, you grew up in a, a Catholic family and had a Catholic education. And so to find that in order to get your writing back on track and to get sober and stay sober, you have to you know, believe in a higher power and trust in a higher power. Was that difficult? Well, they told me that right away on my first day. If you want to stay sober, you have to pray. And I was horrified. And I said, you don't understand. 16 years of Catholic education, that's the greased slide to atheism, or at best, agnosticism. And they said, you don't understand. Unless you have a belief in a higher power and ask it for help, you won't be able to stay sober. Someday you'll drink again. So I asked the woman next to me what she prayed to. And she said, oh, I pray to Mick Jagger. (laughs) (laughs) And I asked another woman what she prayed to, and she said, oh, I pray to sunspots. And so I, they said, you must believe in something. And I thought about it, and I said, I do believe in something. I believe in the force that through the green fuse drives the flower, a line from Dylan Thomas. Uh, and uh, they said, well, that would be good enough. So start praying to the green fuse. So I did. And here you are, all this time later. So what was your journey from embracing the three pages yourself? You taught it, didn't you, for a while, and then turned it into essay notes? Yes. Class notes. And then your your second husband thought it should be a book, didn't he? Yeah. How did you go about that? How did that feel? Well, I had 
fallen in love with Mark Bryan, who became my second husband. So it had been 10 years since my divorce. I, and I had been teaching people in little teeny groups or by mailing them little packages of essays. I, and Mark was a blocked writer and a brilliant one. And I found myself saying, there is no book. I am the class notes. And he said, I have to travel a lot. What if I were to miss a class? How would I make it up? <laughs> and I felt he had cornered me. So I began thinking, huh? what does he need to know? And every week I would write an essay. Uh, and the essays stapled together became a book called Healing the Artist Within. And it was uh, a useful book. And we began to get requests from all over the world to please see the manuscript. So we started Xeroxing it and binding it up by hand and mailing it off. And that ultimately became the artist's way. It's ironic, isn't it, that the more successful the artist's way became and the more in demand you became as a teacher and the more you helped other people with their creativity, the less easy it was for you to be creative yourself, to find the time for that. Uh, I fought for my time. I had uh, the same strong urges to write as I had always had. And um, suddenly I found myself with a vocation to help other people. Uh, and I truly cared about them and wanted to help them. But I realized that unless I found time to do my own writing, uh, my own poetry, my own plays, my own movies, uh, I wouldn't be any good to anyone. So what ended up happening was that by teaching the artist's way, I became more free myself. And it turned out that it wasn't a case of either teach or write. It became a case of do both, just juggle. Could you um, explain to the listeners about emotional sobriety? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, it's a matter of balance. It's a matter of guidance. I had been told to pray, uh, and over, sort of over my dead body, I, I started praying. Uh, and I would get an inkling or a hunch of something to do next. Uh, and if I didn't resist it, uh, I would find myself on sort of a smooth road. And if I resisted the guidance, it would be bumpy. Uh, and um, I found myself saying, I need emotional sobriety, by which I meant it's not enough to just not drink. I need something that gives me courage and moves me forward. Uh, and that became a working definition of emotional sobriety for me. Through the kind of the 30 years of your, your life, kind of your 20s, 30s, and 40s, you seem to have been kind of constantly moving back and forth across America from New York to L.A. and back to New York and back to L.A. and then to Chicago and then down to New Mexico and then back to New York. What were you looking for, do you think? I was looking for a way to be comfortably sober and fulfilled as an artist. Uh, and I needed a way to be seen not only as a teacher, 
but also as an artist. So with each move, uh, I was chasing something about creativity. You know, I would move back and forth across the country, and I felt each time I moved, I was being led. So I had a great deal of faith in spiritual guidance. You live in New Mexico now, don't you? Do you feel like you found it now? I think I was finding bits and pieces of it as I went along. I have been very lucky in my colleagues. Uh, I have Emma Lively, uh, who has been my colleague for 22 years, and she's a composer. Uh, and when I started writing music, I turned to Emma for help with harmonies, uh, and we wrote three musicals together. Uh, and right now, you've met my friend Nick Kapusinski, who works with me, and he's an artist, a poet, an author, a filmmaker. I was lucky enough to keep myself surrounded by creativity. So when you ask if I've found it, I think I'm always in the process of finding it. Do you think it's important to um, keep working, to keep looking, to keep learning? Well, I think what happens is that if you write morning pages, the tool of three pages of longhand writing that leads you into introspection uh, and to a sense of connection with the higher power, if you keep doing morning pages, you will keep being nudged ahead uh, and uh, you won't be satisfied with a lackluster life. You'll find yourself wanting to experience greater depth. And uh, I have a friend who is an atheist, and uh, he says, I'm an atheist and a Jew, and these are hardly your target audiences, <laughs> but your book speaks to me. And I have another friend who says, I have been writing morning pages now for 23 years, and I've written 13 feature films. And Emma Lively, my friend, whom I work with so closely, is on her sixth musical now. So I think it's just a matter of sort of turning yourself over to an experience of guidance. Does that answer your question? It does. Do you still do your morning pages every day? I do. Uh, and um, sometimes they take a long time. I'll get distracted. But I find if I don't get the pages done, I'm scattered. Uh, and if I do get the pages done, I'm led. And just before I ask you the kind of questions that I always ask at the end, what advice, if you have any at all, would you give women who are at the point in their lives that you were in, so in their mid, late 50s, and feeling, you know, in need of reevaluation? And as you put it so brilliantly at the start of the book, if you don't mind me quoting it back to you, because it was absolutely wonderful. At the midpoint, it's time to pick my way along the shoreline to see what of value has been washed up, which memento should be pocketed and which cast aside. Do you have any advice for women who are feeling like that? Where to start? Well, I'm going to sound like a fanatic. <laughs> Go for it. But I would tell everyone to please begin with writing morning pages. 
uh, and to listen to the pages for guidance. And I think what happens with people is that they start writing morning pages and then they find themselves led into other forms of writing or into deeper introspection. But I think the, the pivotal thing is please start morning pages. Please start paying attention to your soul. Thank you. Okay, we'll whiz through the questions that I always ask at the end. What's your emotional age? Oh, 18. Why 18? That was when I committed against all odds to being a writer. I was publishing my first poems. I was writing my first short stories. I was waking up to a bright world lit by my imagination. Can you give me a book recommendation? It could be something that's been very significant to you throughout your life, or it could just be something that you've read and enjoyed recently. Well, there was something which was significant, which is a little teeny book by a man named Ernest Holmes, and it's called Creative Ideas, uh, and it was published in 1934 and then republished uh, about 10 years ago, and I was asked to write the foreword to it. Uh, and it was about a form of positive prayer, and uh, it became an underpinning for the artist's way. What advice would you give younger women? I would tell them, if you have to sneak off to write, sneak off and just start writing. If you start writing, you will start to get hunches about things you could try. Uh, and I would say, so try. I guess what I'm saying to people is, with the morning pages in place, you have a safety net. Uh, and uh, you can afford to take risks because you will find yourself comforted. What is the thing that you are really good at that might surprise people? Or just the thing that you're really good at? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, I think I'm really good at writing, uh, and I'm also good at music. I think that the superpower has been persistence. Yeah, I think that's your superpower, for sure, persistence. Um, and as you've got older, do you care more or less what people think? Well, you see, as I get older, people are more respectful. <laughs> And so they tend to think about me more positively. Uh, and uh, I find myself aging and uh, being led as I age into things which may seem more bold. I wish I had an extra 25 years. Do you feel you've got braver and braver? Yes. That's really something to look forward to, I think. Yes. Thank you, Julia. I really appreciate you making time to talk to me. You're very welcome. You can get back to your pages now. Bravo. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of love. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash the shift.
Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.